Good morning. It is such a... Sorry, I just saw them for the first time. I haven't had, got to hug my nieces and nephews yet today, but it's so good to see you. Uh, it is so good to be here. Thank you for that incredibly generous um, and too kind introduction. The honor this morning is mine uh, to be here with you. And I, we've just been looking forward to this for a long time and are so grateful to be able to be here today. Thankful uh, to you um, for your prayers. Some of you are aware that I was on a significant health journey late part of 2019 all the way through 2020. Um, 2020 was dominated by three words in the health department for me, cancer, chemo, and COVID. Um, I didn't have COVID, but I just mean in terms of how it affected all of us. And there were those of you who were praying, I know, for our family and for myself, so grateful received a beautiful quilt um, from you, and it was just such an encouragement to me, and just want to thank you so much for that. I also want to thank you for being one of the partnering churches that partners with us, and um, financially and through your prayers in the work of clergy development and care in our district as we pioneer this new role that I stepped up into in January, and so thank you so much for being a part of that team. Well, I know that you've been taking a journey through the book of Exodus, and I think you arrived at the actual event of the Exodus last week. Is that, was that right? And next to that story, the story that we're turning to this morning is, I think, one of the most epic and famous Bible stories of all time. Like, there's just a few Bible stories that rise to the top and sort of get wide treatment both within church and the wider culture and this is one of them. Animated movies, live action films, stage productions, countless children's books have tried to capture what can ultimately not be captured about the majesty of the event that's in front of us today. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Exodus 14 and 15. Just keep it open before you, because we are um, not going to read it all, but we'll reference certain spots. I, aha. Is that better? Good. We'll reference certain places as we consider the crossing of the Red Sea this morning. So... Um, here we have hundreds of thousands, um, scholars differ, but you know, it could be up to a million people freshly delivered from slavery in Egypt, being led by God out of Egypt into the promised land, except they're not taking the main road. The main road is the shortest route, but that's not the route that they're going. Back up slightly to verse 18 of chapter 13. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Toward the Red Sea. So then we're going to pick up our story in chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back, just tuck that, that away in your mind, tell them to turn back and camp between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal, Zephron. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am 
the Lord. So the Israelites did this. I want you to notice this and tuck it away for later. God set them up. God set them up. He led them toward the Red Sea, even though it wasn't the shortest route. He actually had them turn back and camp facing the direction that they had just come from. And then we have Pharaoh changing his mind, realizing he has lost all his free labor and his society is on the verge of economic collapse because all the workers have gone. And so he orders his whole army in pursuit, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It's all right if you start to chuckle at them here because this is the first time they start this kind of back talk and it's, you're never going to hear the end of it for the whole rest of your journey. And it's always just this hilarious and ridiculous. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to die, or better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And there it is. And there it is. The grumbling begins. As I said, it's the first instance of this kind of back talk. It won't be the last. And what Moses says in response is our focus for today. Now, you, I, hopefully you picked up one of these on your, on your way in. Um, because we were planning to be outside and not project on the screen, you have this, this keep calm and carry on, which is something you've probably seen all over the place, but you may not know the story behind this. This was a poster that was produced by the British Ministry of Information in preparation for the Second World War. It was actually a series of three posters that were produced by that um, British Ministry of Information. They were to be morale-boosting posters. And, and they each had that a slogan under the Tudor crown, which is the symbol of the state, and they were intended to raise the morale of the British public as they prepared for mass airstrikes on major cities. 2.5 million copies were printed. The cities were bombed, and this poster was never publicly displayed. Copies of the poster just went to cold storage until 1940, and then they went to recycling as part of the paper salvage campaign. And the poster never saw the light of day until the year 2000, when bookstore owners in Northumberland were sorting through boxes of used books at, their, at auction, and they uncovered one of the original Keep Calm and Carry On posters, which you can Google later or right now if you're at home. And they just said, oh, this looks interesting. So they hung it up. They framed it, hung it up by their cash register in their store. And it attracted so much interest 
that they began to reproduce it and sell copies and other companies soon followed suit and the slogan, of course, as you now know, with all of its knockoffs has just become like a cultural phenomenon. Endless variations from the cute to the crude, right, on plastic mugs and t-shirts and tea towels and hats and aprons and we have keep calm and knit on, right? Keep calm and party on. Keep calm and shop on. We could really fill in a lot of blanks this morning. Um, one one uh, take on it that I saw is sort of a flip side favorite. So the crown is upside down and it says, now panic and freak out. <laughs> and, and panic and freak out is exactly what the Israelites are doing here as they see the approaching army of Pharaoh. And thousands of years before Winston Churchill, Moses had the same message for his panic-stricken public. To the people with the deep sea ahead of them and all of Pharaoh's army behind them, we have this message in 13 and 14. And I actually printed it for you because we were planning to be outside. And I'd like to take advantage of the fact that you have it in your hands. And let's read it. And we're going to read it in three different translations this morning. And men, I'm going to ask you to read um, the, the first one. And ladies, we'll read the second one together. And then all together, we'll read the third version. So here you go. I'll get you started. Men, let's read together. Moses Thank you. All right, ladies, let's read together. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Then all of us, let's, let's read the last one together. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid, just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you, just stay calm. Three versions, some variations, but three common threads. Do not be afraid. Be still. The Lord will fight for you. Do not be afraid. Be still. The Lord will fight for you. And my proposal to you this morning is that if we will hear those words and if we will take them to heart, we will be able to keep calm and carry on in any and every situation. I want to invite you to think for a moment about your own 
Red Sea experience today. Maybe something that you're facing that is difficult, overwhelming, something that seems impossible. Maybe there's a corner in your life that you feel God has backed you into. Maybe you are crying out to the Lord in complaint. Maybe you are terrified. Whatever it is, just allow that circumstance to come to your mind, that thing that feels too big for you, and hold it before you as we lean into these words this morning. The first word is, do not be afraid. The Bible talks a lot about fear. It's actually mentioned over 600 times in various ways. Fear has been with us since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve first ate of the forbidden fruit, the word records that God was walking in the garden, looking for them and calling out, where are you? And Genesis 3.10 says that Adam called out from his hiding place, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid. And we have been afraid ever since. At family camp at Silver Lake a few weeks ago, I was swimming out to the water trampoline with my daughter, Karis, and as we're swimming, she asks me, what's your greatest fear? Now, actually knew what she wanted to talk about was her greatest fear, was that there was fish that were going to find her feet while we were swimming out to the trampoline. And my son, who was swimming on the other side, his greatest fear in that moment was the weeds that were going to be surrounding the trampoline when we got there. But we're afraid of stuff like that, right? Snakes and spiders and heights and weeds and, and fish. Not my nephews, not afraid of fish. They try to catch every fish they possibly can, and they're so good at it. Um, but we're afraid of things that are much more serious than that. It's true, aren't we? Death, sickness not having enough money, not having enough time, afraid of change. I mean, this whole COVID uh, season has been one of profound fear, hasn't it? From every angle and legitimate, justified fear. Fear of gathering, fear of being alone, fear of contracting disease, fear of getting a vaccine. Fear of going to work, fear of not being able to go to work. No matter where you found yourself, there's been something to be afraid of. I mean, we're glad to be putting it mostly in the rearview mirror for now, but do you remember back to the beginning? Remember what the store shelves were empty of? <laughs> oh, you know it. It was the toilet paper. The toilet paper, flour, and yeast, even though so many people were not baking their own bread before COVID, then all of a sudden you couldn't find flour and yeast. Why? <laughs> people are afraid of not having enough. And so people gathered more than they needed in case they might be caught short. I mean, it's good to laugh about some of these things, but isn't it true that fear is 
basically our go-to reaction. It's our default, and rightly so. I mean, as followers of Jesus, we try to sort of holy it up a bit sometimes by calling it like concern or... um, We might even use the word worry, even though we know Jesus tells us not to worry. But underneath it all is the same thing. It's fear. Now, we know that fear can function as a good thing. We do know that. Um, Caleb's first word was hot. And the reason why is because at the time we were living in a little cottage that was heated by um, uh, hot water radiator things on the wall and he was starting to crawl around and so he's becoming very mobile and those were a massive hazard and so we said the word hot a lot we said it loudly and firmly we wanted him to develop fear of touching those things because the fear would protect him we used the word so much it became his first word fear of the right things can keep us safe And can keep us from doing things that would harm ourselves or others. Right? So there is fear that protects. But there is also fear that paralyzes. And it is to the fear that paralyzes that Moses speaks the words, do not be afraid. And as I meditated on those words, and particularly as they find themselves in this great rescue story that God is telling, I realized they're stamped all over it. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of where the story of Israel started in Genesis 15, God came, comes to Abram with these words, Do not be afraid. In just a little while, as you continue the story, the spies will be sent into the promised land to check it out. And the words that go with them are, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. Israel will go on from this place to face armies they cannot fight. And over and over again, the word that will come to them is, do not be afraid. Joshua eventually will prepare to succeed Moses and lead the people into the promised land. And I realize these are all spoiler warnings, but I think you know the story already. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Hundreds of years from this time, when the people are back in exile, the word that will come to them then is, fear not. I have redeemed you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. When Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel, the angel came with these words, do not be afraid. To shepherds keeping watch over their fields at night came the words, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. To the women at the empty tomb, Do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. From the beginning of the rescue story to the middle, all the way to the end and beyond, these are the words that are stamped over it. Do not be afraid. 197 times in the book we have that command. Often spoken at times that were truly terrifying. You see, the fear of the people here is not irrational. It is completely justified. They were facing re-enslavement at best and 
total slaughter and annihilation at worst. There was absolutely no out from a human perspective. Not only does Moses tell them not to be afraid, he, cor- he commands something even more outrageous and irrational. Just stand still. Just stand still. Now, other translations say stand your ground, stand where you are, stand firm, keep calm. Do not be afraid, just stand still. Let me ask you this. How easy is it to stand still? Right? If we're being honest. I mean, if you're, if you're a grown-up here this morning, you may no longer wiggle and squirm and move all over the place while your teacher or mother asks you, why can't you just sit still? Well, you might, but you might not. But isn't it true that we often rush on, rush ahead, take things in our own hands, try to make it happen, right? Isn't it true that we are action people, We want to fix it, and if we can't fix it, we want to run from it. We want to solve it, and if we can't solve it, we want to get far away because we just are not people who are good at staying where we are. We get bored. We're impatient. We want to do something, and standing still feels like doing nothing. But I want to tell you this morning, loved ones, that from a biblical perspective, standing still is the biggest something we can do. Standing still is the biggest something we can do. It is active. It is expectant. It requires effort on your part, but effort of the right kind. Standing still is not doing nothing. In fact, if we were to do a whole study of this all throughout the book, we would discover that standing still involves prayer. It involves trust. It involves obedience. That is what Moses was calling the people to do then, and that is what the people of God are called to do today. Let me tell you the truth, loved ones. Those postures of your heart, prayer, trust, obedience, those postures have far more power to move your situation forward than all your efforts will ever be able to do. And I'll tell you why. Because there's something bigger going on here that we don't want to miss. Without even looking it up, I bet you could fill in this blank. Be still and know that I am God. Right? Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. And that knowing that's talked about there in that psalm is not just like knowing, you know, that there is a God or knowing about a God. It is that head, um, it is that heart encounter. Right? Not head knowledge, but heart encounter. Not a knowing about, but an experience of. And that is what God is after here. 
In fact, that's what God is after in the whole grand narrative of this rescue story. If we were to go back to Exodus chapter 6, where, where God is talking about this, he says, I will bring you out from slavery into freedom with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Then you will know. I'm going to rescue you because then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And I know you've already covered the plague stories, and in there you might have discovered eight out of ten times in the plague stories we have that phrase repeated, you will know that I am the Lord. Right where we read this morning in verse 4, where he talks about why he's going to do this, um, he says, I, the Pharaoh will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Keep paying attention to that phrase. It's going to keep coming up as you journey with Israel through the book of Exodus. It comes up again and again so that you will know that I am the Lord your God. You see, loved ones, our God is a God who desires to make himself known. We have a God who wants to be experienced, who wants to be encountered, encountered, and he desires to make his glory known to us. And it always begins with being still. Because when we are still, when we don't get in God's way, we have an opportunity to see God at work in ways we could have never asked for or imagined. Do not be afraid. Stand still. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord himself will fight for you, the NLT says. And it's the first time that promise appears in Israel's story, but it won't be the last. In fact, Moses and Miriam and all hundreds of thousands of voices strong will sing about Yahweh the warrior in the next chapter. And this is where they first begin to encounter the God who fights for them. As the whole story of Israel unfolds again and again, we have God the warrior king leading his people into battle. Now, Israel will go on to fight battles that the Lord will fight with them. They will go on to fight some battles that they decide to fight without him, and that does not go well. But here, Yahweh fights for them in an entire history of a nation, and I would be so bold to say the history of humanity is changed as a result Let's pick up the story in verse 19 of chapter 14. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. 
the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. It's such an awesome, amazing picture. You think you've stood in some long lines shopping during COVID at stores with capacity limits? Picture a line like some scholars suggest 5,000 people across, a million people long, every one of them walking through on the dry ground that used to be the bottom of the sea. Only our God can do that. God had called the children of Israel to do the irrational. It was irrational to say, do not be afraid, stand still. Those commands made no sense in their situation, but he called them to do the illogical so that he could do the impossible. Remember God's goal here, so that people will know that he is God. The Lord will fight for you. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. Here it is. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Unfortunately for them, they figured that out too late, and their, their uh, attempts to flee were unsuccessful. But let me tell you the truth. This is not just the story of Israel. If you are in Christ... This is your story. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is about the God who fights for us. The God who rescues, who delivers, who redeems. The God who leads us out of the slavery we were in to sin and death and into the freedom of the kingdom of God. And he does it against impossible odds. And this is the story of every person who is in Christ. It's not just the story of our salvation. It is, it is the story of our every situation. I want to invite you to allow that situation to come to the surface of your mind again, that thing you were thinking about of your own Red Sea situation, that thing in your life that may be difficult, impossible, overwhelming, insurmountable. Winston Churchill, if he was printing a morale-boosting poster for you, might say, keep calm and carry on. But the words to really hear are these. Do not be afraid. Stand still. 
the Lord will fight for you.